I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. We live in a world where there is a surfeit, a plethora even, of negative information. A couple of SAT words thrown in just for good measure. And much of that negative information leads us to a pretty grim view of the world and where it is headed. Any look at any newspaper or website or listen to the radio or TV provides ample evidence of what could go wrong. And so as a corrective to that, we are going to look at what could go right. What could go right doesn't mean that it will go right any more than what could go wrong means that it will go wrong. But it does mean that we're going to take a hard-edged look at the alternatives with a full consideration of all the things that are problematic and negative. This is not meant as a Pollyanna view of the world or a rose-tinted lens into a reality that is otherwise complicated. But it is meant as a way of saying, look, if we're going to spend so much time analyzing all that is problematic and wrong in the world, we ought to spend at least a little bit of time analyzing the things that could lead in a more positive and constructive direction. The legacy of human history has been a death dance between our ability to create and our ability to destroy. And the fact that we are here today speaking of it means that just narrowly, our ability to create, survive, and thrive has edged out in that dance, our ability to destroy. So we ought to be paying at least a modicum of attention to what could go right. We are speaking today with Philip Bobbitt, Professor Philip Bobbitt, who is the Herbert Wexler Professor of Federal Jurisprudence and the Director for the Center for National Security at the Columbia Law School. He was a longtime law professor at the University of Texas at Austin. But more important for our discussion, he is the author of several books that really uh, do for our present world of nation states what deep thinkers of the past like Hegel and Marx and uh, others have done to think about the world that we're in. Not saying that Professor Bobbitt is a Marxist, just that he has thought deeply about the world in books like The Shield of Achilles and Terror and Consent and a recent study of Machiavelli called The Garments of Court and Palace. And this is not just a man who has thought deeply about the world, but he's also walked the walk as he has talked the talk and served multiple stints in and out of the federal government, including legal counsel to the Iran-Contra Committee in the 1980s, uh, stints on the National Security Council, and stints in the State Department where he has been an advisor and a strategist for multiple presidents. Welcome to the discussion. 
So, Philip, I wanted to talk to you first or ask you first, you know, you've written a lot about the state as an apparatus of power. So maybe you could elaborate. What does that mean? I was trying to draw attention to the fact that the state is the template for legitimate action in a society, that we take its fundamental premises uh, monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, for example, more or less for granted, and that we may be living in one of those very rare moments in which the nature of the state itself is changing. I imagine most people who think about these things don't think about that possibility because they assume that the nation state began in 1648 after the Thirty Years' War and has continued more or less in the same mold since then. And uh, the book, The Shield of Achilles, is an argument against that. It asserts that the modern state really begins a century earlier, that it is typically forged in war and emerges from these sometimes decades-long wars with its premise of legitimacy changed. And with that idea, I sketched out a half dozen different forms of the state, including the one we live in now, the industrial nation state, which I date to the 1870s in the United States and in Germany. And I speculated that that form of the state, the industrial nation state, the 20th century state, was changing in a fundamental way that would change everything else. And that instead of focusing on the sort of symptoms of this change, political polarization, the rise of uh, ethno-nationalism within states, devolution, globalization. Instead of focusing on these uh, items, we might focus on something more fundamental, that the state itself might be changing, shifting beneath our feet, and that these were just symptoms of that deep change. You wrote Shield of Achilles, what, uh, 15 years ago. I wonder if any of the things that have gone on since, which which look in the present like a lot of renationalization, like the strengthening mm. of the industrial nation state between Brexit, between the rhetoric of Donald Trump, between the kind of renationalization of industries. But is that just a, a dying gasp of the industrial nation state or does it look a little different 15 years on? Most of the things that have happened since the Shield of Achilles was published actually tend rather to uh, confirm its thesis. Let me just mention two or three. Although nationalism has been around a very long time, uh, nations are in the, spoken of in the Bible, the union of, the, of, the, of a nation, which is an ethnic, cultural, linguistic, historical construction, with the state is fairly, is fairly new. The, it's the Napoleonic state, the Madisonian state, that created these imperial states around a particular national group and sort of supercharged the state by moving it away from a narrow basis in an aristocracy to a much broader base in a large ethnic religious population. That means that although as Americans we often use the word nation and state as though they were interchangeable, that's not really quite right. And when you reflect upon the fact that there are nations that don't have states, like the Kurds, or the Palestinians, or the Cherokee, then you can see these terms are not interchangeable. What we see now, the rise of uh, ethno-nationalisms, 
is not the apotheosis of the nation-state. On the contrary, the nation-state exalted one national group at the expense of all the others. So, to take the United Kingdom, the identification of the English with the British state was so profound that <laughs> that they didn't even notice. This is true not just of, uh, of, of Britain, it was true of the Han in China, it was true of Castilians in Spain, and it was true of national groups in all these powerful nation-states. I've only seen the flag of St. George in the last decade. The English never never thought of themselves as a national group because they had the state. It was their state. Hmm. The national groups were these pesky Scots and irritating Welsh and rebellious Irish. And now that's changing. And it's changing because the insurgent form of the state what is something I call market states. Market states are much friendlier to nationalism than nation states ever were. In one version of the European Union, the version that, if the Union survives, will be, I think, the version of the 21st century, a much greater support for uh, Catalonia, or the Basque region, or Lombardy, or Wallonia, or Scotland, than you ever saw prior to the Union, because prior to the Union, these were not really viable nation-states. Now they are. They exist within a much broader European economic and legal community. Or as we know, post-1989, you've got Slovakia, and you've got the Czech Republic, and you've got Albania, and Croatia, and Serbia. I mean, you've got all these things that used to be ethnic components of larger states. Now they're actually their own states, so kind of proving, proving your point. How does that play with uh, the United States today? The Civil War redefines citizenship, and it moves away from a white, Protestant, Northern European ethnic focus by emancipating the slaves. And, of course, the word citizen is a key word in the 15th Amendment, overruling Dred Scott and saying that uh, we now are citizens of the United States that embraces all all the people in this in this country. And that step is a step away from the nation as an ethnic, uh, religious, and, and cultural group. It defines citizenship according to law rather than according to a culture and race. Now, we're still working on that. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> we, we haven't fully, uh, fully resolved that, and uh, I'm not sure that that uh, will ever make it as perfect as as its authors hoped it would become. But we've come a long way. And I think there is a sense among many Americans, not all Americans, that uh, we are stronger when we are uh, diverse and when we respect many cultures and don't penalize particular ethnic cultures. Yeah, although clearly we're in we're in our own particular fray right now. I mean, it's interesting. You know, you've written a lot um, that builds on classical notions of history and progress. I wonder, you know, do you feel when you look at your crystal ball based on past knowledge, are we? Is there an inevitability to interstate conflict and war because that has always been the way nations change, or is your view of nations changing their very DNA? leading away from that kind of conflict? Well, that's a very profound question to which I don't have a particularly persuasive answer, but I'll tell you what I, what I believe. I think that the development of human civilization is a tragic 
but I don't think that it's mechanical or or, uh, or fixed. By tragic, I mean we have, as human beings, conflicting values. We have more values than we can make real in our lives or in our cultures. And because of that, we will go through cycles in which we prefer some values and degrade others, and then reverse that. And our achievements undermine themselves. Now, that's tragic, and it means that you won't find heaven on earth. On the other hand, it's not mechanical. It doesn't mean, I think, that uh, we just keep making the same old mistakes over and over again, and we are doomed to create new forms of the state after earth-shattering violence. On the contrary, one reason I gave myself to write uh, The Shield of Achilles and Terror and Consent was to think that if we solve these things in their historical pattern, we could avoid that kind of conflict, that it might be possible to bring about change through peaceful means, or at least means not as shattering as the epical wars of the past that brought forth. I think these kinds of understanding of historical context, thinking about how people have thought about the very structures that we inherit and then by virtue of being alive change, like that's really important. But how would this translate into trying to think about the policies of healthcare and, and yeah. global policy about ISIS? Well, I have sort of a two-level approach to this. On the one hand, I try and give uh, plans in the things I write. So I have pages with 10-point programs and statutes that need to be rewritten and proposals that need to be manifested in legislation and policies announced and changed and treaties ratified and rejected and so on. But uh, that's that's not uh, the only or even the main tactic I, I see these books as, as uh, employing. The main thing I want to do is to file down the fingertips of the safe cracker to make the political analyst or the uh, public servant sensitive to the changes that I imagine I see on the horizon so that when they occur, the sensitized public servant says, oh, wait, wait I, I see what this is. I see this. This is a pattern. This falls. This reinforces that. This is a driver of this. And then they can come up with their own proposals. Uh, I, I write for people uh, as I teach students with whom I, I don't agree. Uh, <laughs> I may not even agree remotely. Uh, but I try to empower them to take these uh, future worlds where they want them to go in some a space that's consistent with their political, moral, spiritual convictions, which probably are not mine. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I do want to talk a little bit about the challenge of security, which you've thought about a lot over the past 30 years. And, you know, one of the ironies in the United States today, of course, is as the as the actuality of international terrorism as a domestic threat has decreased, or certainly it never increased commensurate with the concern, mm-hmm. um, the fear of it has gone up markedly. Now, maybe that's a totally rational response to a series of hard to identify global players who could do us great harm. But, you know, there is this, there's a much greater fear than there is lethality, right? We're much more likely to die in a yeah. car crash or yeah. I think yeah. we're more likely to, to slip Slipping in a bathtub. Up, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, first of all, what do you think about that? Is that a way for the state to justify its increased power? Is it a legitimate response? And then maybe we can talk about some of the specifics like drone warfare and how we go about that. I think that we are in a, uh, I think these are our salad days. I think we're in a period of relative tranquility, relative prosperity, uh, relative health. And my concern is that we're not using this period to think about what's, what's coming up. Uh, I don't think that we are irrationally afraid. I'm I'm concerned that we will become irrationally afraid when suddenly uh, we have a, uh, events uh, that we haven't prepared for. We haven't really thought were on the horizon. The time to really to be thinking about a terrorist attack with biological weapons is now. Right. You know we. We st- I'll give you one tiny example. We don't have distribution centers for vaccines uh, in populated areas because we confine the places where they'd be distributed to government uh, properties, uh, military bases, uh, uh state hospitals, when in fact we could use the distribution network of drugstores and pharmacies much more effectively uh, because it's so vastly more decentralized. They're, so, they're, they're present in so many places. Now, we could think our way through that now, but if we don't and we were to get hit with, with some pathogen, uh, then I think fear would uh fear might overtake us right. and we might very well do things that are that would appear in retrospect self-defeating and uh irrational hmm. and i mean are you concerned about some of what we've done uh to date not really domestically because 
you know, as much as there's been heated debate about civil liberties and collection of metadata by the National yeah. Security Agency and, you know, is this domestic spying, is it not? There have been equivalent arguments in other countries about the use of closed caption TV in the United Kingdom, for instance, which has far more cameras per person yeah. oh, or per yeah. square block than the United States does. Um, there's the question of drone warfare, right? This was a huge deal. And I think a lot of changes happened between the first Obama administration and the second and that there was a much wider use of drone warfare yeah. to yeah. get rid of enemies. I, actually, what, what do you think about that? As a Because recently the Trump administration, I think, went went back a little more toward Obama 2009 to 2013 in in how that might be authorized. Um, yeah. Well, there is a, a great deal of uh, law, both constitutional law and uh, the law of executive practices, secreted in the operations of government. And it's not litigated. It's not, uh, it's not in a statutory form, but it governs the things the executive does. The authorization for targeted killing is an example of that. You won't find that in the statute books. It's not in the Constitution. But it doesn't mean that those rules don't conform to statutes and don't conform to the Constitution. The Office of Legal Counsel opinion that I think you have in mind is an evaluation of a set of rules that the White House announced publicly as to what criteria the president would, um, would apply in authorizing a targeted killing. That it's done by drones, I don't think is, is legally significant. It, it is culturally and politically significant. We, we now train more drone operators in the Air Force than we do pilots. And, and these changes in warfare, as you know from the Shield of Achilles, are, are signals of changes in the nature of the state. So that's, that's quite important politically, but, but in legal terms, it's not all that important because whether you shoot someone with a carbine or shoot them with an explosive delivered by some other mechanism is probably legally not that relevant. But the targeted killing question is quite an important one. And the extent to which the, those criteria, which were quite restrictive, uh, have been modified is something we want to talk about, something we, we, want to, uh, we want to discuss. I never thought the press was right or the ACLU was right to push for the release of the OLC opinion, which evaluated these criteria. I thought what we needed to push for was just an explanation by the president. Hmm. You know, the Office of Legal Counsel are just a bunch of lawyers. Right. But the, but the president owed it to the country to say, this is how I do it. Hmm. These are the criteria I apply, and this is why. Even if he just read the OLC opinion line by line, his endorsement of it would mean that it now had the significance of a presidential doctrine. And if the new president, President Trump, has modified those criteria, he has an obligation not just to say, I've modified them, but to say to the public, and these are the new rules, and this is my rationale, and that's what I've done. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really good point. I mean, there is the greater concern of we might have a legal framework that makes sense. There's clearly not an international legal framework such that, you know, we have a set of principles that we've all abided by globally. I mean, there's, it would be difficult if at some point you know, 10 years from now, 
if uh, the Beijing Chinese Communist Party decides that somebody living in Dharamsala, India, who advocates for Tibetan independence, has an, a, a desire to use terrorism to achieve that and authorizes a drone strike yeah. to do a targeted killing, we don't really have a clear international moral or legal ground to oppose that, right? I think we don't have a clear legal ground. We may have a moral uh, and political ground. And you're absolutely right. We, we want rules. <laughs> we want rules because we are a very powerful state with global interest. And regular, predictable, stable international behavior is in our interest. The idea that because we are powerful, we should dispense with rules, that rules are just like kind of an annoying set of barriers hamstringing us, is a very shallow view of where our interests lie. And you've always been really, uh, I have to say, and correct me if I get this wrong, but I have used or paraphrased one of your observations in Terror and Consent as, I think, one of the more profound ways of looking at the relationship between law, morality, and and necessity, political necessity. So, you know, for years in this debate over terrorism and torture, you know, was is there ever a place for torture in a in a sort of modern society? And people always respond with the the ticking time bomb, you know, if you had somebody and you knew they had knowledge of right. a thermonuclear device that was going to blow up Manhattan and you had two hours, would you torture them to get that information if they weren't otherwise giving it? And that, you know, the answer to that is often intuitively, you know, yes, you would in that the greater good would demand it. And that was then used as an argument for, therefore, we ought to allow torture. And your response to that is, no, torture should be illegal. It should be against yeah. the law. And if in that one in 10 million potential possibility, which has never yet happened, you did have that situation, yes, you would break the law for the greater good, but it would still be the law. That's right. I mean, it, and, and that happens. I thought that was a, a brilliant way of looking at it. We had a case in uh, Germany that I mentioned in Terran Consent of a policeman who had arrested a, uh, a kidnapper uh, picking up ransom money. The kidnapped person was a child, and the German police officer took the guy he had arrested back to the station house. He didn't beat him, but he threatened to beat him. <laughs> Apparently, it must have been a pretty convincing threat because the police officer was dismissed for having threatened a prisoner, and, uh, and there was a public outcry. And an investigation, and later he was he was reinstated. Hmm. You know, if you break the law and in fact actually do save the city, don't worry about that. Right. <laughs> the, the city will will be uh, will be grateful to you. It's it's more the other direction. If you're going to take the law into your own hands and break it, you better be damn sure that this is that one in a million. Case because it is illegal. And that's why it has to be illegal. Why you can't, why you can't try and regularize it through warrants or uh, special excuses. Hard cases make yeah, bad law. They make bad law. Yeah. So I want to I want to wrap up a bit, but um, it's been. I mean, I have to say this: the need for this kind of perspective in a incredibly noisy time where 
every utterance of the White House and every moment of political debate and every press conference and every, you know, committee report on a health care bill or, a, you know, pr- proposal floated about ISIS receives sort of intense microscopic attention to the absence <laughs> of the bigger picture. You know, having that bigger picture, I think, is in and of itself vital. And of course, you know, none of us know where we're heading. Uh, I suppose the optimists among us can can hope for and maybe foresee a continuation of what you called our salad days. The pessimist among us can see this as a July of 1914 moment, you know, a halcyon summer before the guns of August and, and war. And we'll know in the greater fullness of time, which of those moments that we are in. But I do want to thank you so much for talking to me today. Well, thank you so much too. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. It's nice to, uh, discuss these things and uh, and to know there's somebody out there who's actually interested in <laughs> there and, and hopefully there are a lot more so thanks a lot professor bobbitt thanks hope you've enjoyed our conversation today i hope there are many more to come please join those conversations on my website or elsewhere and share them with friends talk about them have a bottle of wine argue about them read about it think about it over morning coffee Ideas are the lifeblood of our societies, and I hope that this conversation and others keep that blood flowing. I'm Zachary Carabell, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.